right, welcome to The Jig Is Up. My name is Darcy, and with me as always is Jason. Hey, Jason. Hey, how's it going tonight, Darcy? Not bad. How about you? Good. The sun is shining. I got the corn planted, so life is great. Well, that's fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been a nice few days here in Alberta. I'm very, very pleased with that. I'm looking yeah, forward. it was a long winter, so it's nice to get some sunshine. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I don't even—I don't know if the floods are uh, really even that big of a deal right now because we're not getting any rain. So hopefully, it stays that way. Yeah, it'd be nice to get a little bit of rain. I, you know, I think we're slated to get some up here later this week, so that'd be nice, kind of green things up and keep the old forest fire warning in check. That would be nice. Yeah, just no torrential downpours where then you flood. That would suck. Yeah, that's not—that's not good. Um, so yeah, so, uh, we got a lot of stuff here to cover. Um, I do want to say though, if, uh, for all of our listeners, if you want to hear some exclusive content and you want to gain access to that, make sure you head to our Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash the jig is up and you'll get all sorts of rewards this, this month. Uh, we're for $10 a month. We're going to plant a tree. I say we, but it's really Jason's going to go plant a tree for you. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> he's very excited. I He's been voluntold for that. Uh, but, yeah, so check those out and uh, be sure to, you know, pledge if you can. And we appreciate it. So thank you. Just a note on planting the trees. We're going to plant them in a place that was previously logged. That was a spruce pine stand, but no replanting took place. So we're going to go and plant those trees with your help. Awesome. So yeah, get out there and uh, if you pledge 10 bucks, he's going to get those trees up and, and cooking. So that's awesome. I'll even take a selfie with me in the tree. Absolutely. I, I think I promised somebody, people that you'd take a video or something too, but uh, maybe on the YouTube Woo-hoo! channel, maybe for the YouTube channel. I'll, I'll throw some YouTube content of me doing uh, a throwback to some tree planting. <laughs> Sounds good. Oh man. Keep it PG though. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, tree planting in my younger days. <laughs> Fun times. So we've had a uh, an interesting uh, week or so of of Métis news. Uh, you know, there's a brand new president in the of the MMF of uh, what is seventh term? No, fourth term. Seventh term. Seventh. S- seventh term. That's right. So, and he was acclaimed. So, yay! No election. Nobody even gets to vote or anything like that. That's awesome. Terribly democratic. Absolutely. Uh, I, I, I heard that there was actually quite a few of their, uh, I don't know, elected positions that were acclaimed. And I just thought that was kind of sad that nobody's willing to run against these people. But there's a lot of rumors out there, and I'm not going to say them. But, uh, you know, it, it doesn't surprise me that nobody ran against them. Anyway. But I, I think this really highlights the, the idea of individuals running for positions in what they claim to be a government's uh, hierarchy is that you're not going to ever find people to do that in, in singularities. I mean, that's why any real governments that uh, are of colonial in nature have parties and they use a party system to govern. Yeah. Cause then the par- party puts people forward to run and then you're picking not just a person's platform, but a party platform. And I think that's what we're really seeing is, I mean, I posted this online seven years times, you know, four years a term. Yeah. Do the math. How, I mean, we have a guy in Manitoba who basically has been unchallenged and is essentially a hereditary chief. He'll be there till he retires. Absolutely. He, he'll be there till he decides to leave. 
And then the chances are it'll be whoever he's kind of uh, taught that will take the position. So, um, Well, it'll be one of the other ministers who then seeks the top spot, as in any colonial structure, right? Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was really sad, too. Like, I think it's a really sad uh, to be trying to claim that this is democratic when... I, I don't know. They they also can't claim to have 120,000 members, which, again, is a complete joke. But if you did have 120,000 members and not one person is willing to run for that leadership position, I think you seriously have to look at the, uh, you know, the input of the people in the organization, the engagement of people, because that's pretty sad. Well, and the other thing I haven't seen yet, uh, I haven't seen them publish the actual voter turnout. I don't know if you've saw that or not. No, I haven't. Not at all. No. So, So I mean, if you're boasting that kind of uh, membership, I'm really curious to see if you have no one that's even interested in running for office or, you know, everything is so absolutely peachy within the organization, no one would even think that it would be worth running then I would uh, be really interested to see what voter turnout is. Absolutely. And and I don't know, Like, do you take that as a sign that everybody's super, so super happy with the job that he's doing, or do you take it as well, a sign you, of lack of engagement? I don't know. Well, you definitely know from their, their standpoint, um, any organization with the, with the magnitude of uh, finances they have behind them would definitely spin this that way, wouldn't you? You would you would say, well, look at see my leadership is so fantastic. No one would even want to run against me because I'm doing such a great job. Yeah. And and if voter turnout is so low, it's because people are just so happy they don't think they have to vote. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I don't know. I just uh, I, I'm curious to see now how Alberta's elections go in September. Um, and I think Ontario's is in August, so. It'll be, it'll be interesting to see how these other ones go if the voter turnout, if we ever get the voter turnout numbers or anything like that, who knows. But uh, Yeah, because we've talked about before, voting is so convenient in the first place Yeah, the, to, to encourage voter turnout. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and then they these organizations really hype up their the magnitude of the numbers of members they have right up until you learn how many people voted. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and I don't know. I I think honestly a seventh term as the president like you, you got to be thinking, man, at some point in time it's time for new leadership. It just is. Like so he's going to be what, 28 years coming at the end of this? 28 years? That's insane. That's crazy. Well, see, no, normally if this was traditional governance, I wouldn't have a problem with a hereditary position. That's True. because there's checks, there's checks and balances within that system that's designed for that. Yeah. But when you're talking about a colonial system that's top-down heavy, you have to have some kind of role in in leadership, right? There yeah. has to be that that change out because otherwise it doesn't work. Yeah. And and yet, so we basically have hereditary leadership in a colonial structure. Absolutely. And from my point of view, what I think it's really led to is complete disengagement from the, the membership. I mean, let's be honest. If all this hype on social media was that fervent and people were that passionate and social media was just the tip of this huge iceberg of support for Métis nationalism in the heartland of Manitoba, I expect their voter turnout to then be staggering. 
Oh yeah, like high they ninety. They said tens of thousands of voters to have turned out. Yeah. Over this election, if the fervor that we see and the rhetoric that we see online is really real. Yes. Well, yeah, absolutely. And with a, with, a, with their claim of a hundred and twenty thousand members, I mean, so if a hundred thousand of them were to to vote, I think that would be pretty reasonable in this case. But, uh, you know, so I don't know. And then they set themselves up for a bit of failure because if they say there's 120,000 members and they only get 1,000 people showing up, that's even worse. Well, and and that's what we see. You know, if I saw that the Chartrand got on and he had no opposition and 100,000 people, you know, were supporting and and they voted in all the other positional election positions that they could and there was this big turnout – well, they have a pretty clear mandate from a, a very large majority of the Métis in that province. Absolutely. But but sadly, I think you're exactly right. It, you're going to see probably a less than 1%. Yeah, I would expect, yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's really, uh, I don't know, It's I don't think it's something to brag about when you have this kind of installed leadership. I mean, essentially at this point, it's do whatever you want, say whatever you want, and you know, I think you're you're you absolutely hit it there when you said you know it's it's a you know hereditary system in a in a colonial system because we talked about this so many times how these uh, nonprofit structures don't work they're not truly democratic it's a popularity contest between some people whoever decides to throw their their name in and uh, and so yeah it's it's this isn't really a democratic system just because you can vote doesn't necessarily make it a democratic system I mean. You know, Putin claims that Russian elections are democratic and free as well because everybody gets to go vote. Well, and last time I checked, I believe most of these organizations run like an oligarchy. So the the reality is, is just because you can vote doesn't make it democratic. Exactly. And I think I think that needs to be cleared up. People need to maybe get a dictionary out again and look at what democracy means yeah. and the responsibilities of it. And I think that's really what we're... Uh, the highlights of the absolute failure is in a democracy, there is a responsibility to the voter to get out and vote. Yes. Yeah. And I think, I think between this horrible mashup of hereditary colonialism that we see in these oligarchies, we see the abject failure of the Métis people within these organizations to take responsibility and vote. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's a tough thing to sit back and watch. I don't know, um, I don't know how you get people more engaged, and and at the same time, I don't know how you get these organizations to be more responsible. I mean, everybody's screaming like, "Oh, we want change, we want change," but I don't know. This kind of says to me that maybe they, it's not that wanted. Well, and I, I think the, the hardest challenge for me personally to sit back and watch is when you look at the budget numbers uh, that we've talked about. And that translates into the abject voter turnout, um, the acclamation of a seventh term for a hereditary chief of the Métis people. I think that this is now broken on so – I mean, there's so many spokes missing out of this wheel now, I don't even know how it rolls. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Like, I don't know how the cart goes down the road anymore, and yet, boy, we're sure trying to drag it to the finish line. Yeah. Yeah, no, I couldn't imagine any other style of governance or or system of governance that would work like this in in outside of these organizations, um, or outside of a nonprofit. It 
it just doesn't work. These are not democracies. So I don't know. I mean, it's it's just a sad, sad reality. And you look across the board. I think every every president, with the exception of Saskatchewan, maybe I think all of them have been there for you know fifteen plus years. So uh, I think that you know I, I know in Alberta they're talking about bringing in term limits for these guys, but I don't know. I mean, is that really truly the answer, or is more engagement the answer? I don't know. Well, the problem, and this is the real challenge that I think Indigenous people have to wrap their heads around, is we look at colonial politics as the the example of how electoral systems work. And what we see is at the federal level and at the provincial level, every four years you have the possibility of a change out. And so there's no stability. There's no long-term yeah. vision. Yeah. And so while I appreciate, hey, you got seven terms of leadership, there's no balance then though on the opposite side in that in what would be an uh, an indigenous you know traditional governance system yes so yeah. now you basically have you know we might as well have elected putin because what did it matter yeah no i th- i think you can make a very good point i think it's you know you you need to fix the system either on one end cuz like you said if you have that short if you have the the term limits then you have short term vision and and so you're going to have to uh, you know do something to kind of balance that or you have these endless terms but you have no balance to that so either way there's got to be something that needs to be done to balance whatever those issues are that the negatives i guess that that come with those things but well and and it's not like we're well, this is something we've dreamed up uh there's many uh, excellent examples of indi- in traditional indigenous governance that handled both of these issues well, you know, that had hereditary chiefs, but a yes. community accountability. Yeah. So we're not trying to reinvent the wheel here. We're just trying to go back to the original wheel. Exactly. Exactly. So then, you know, the other thing that I, I came out today uh, related to uh, Chartrand here is he has decided the meetings with the government of Manitoba did not go well. Um, they didn't hug it out and, and play nice with each other. So he has given the green light to his lawyers, to their lawyers, to take the Manitoba government to court over the whole hydro deal thing. And uh, I just, you know, we're talking all the time about these professional fees, and then you hear this stuff, and I'm like, well, I don't know. <laughs> uh, what's your first take on that? Well, I think we have to remember, first and foremost, what the hydro deal was. Um, weren't they signing over how many years of consent? Yeah, I think it was, jeez, uh, I want to say it was like 99, wasn't it 99 years or something crazy like that? Yeah, it was, it was ridiculous. It was well over 50. Yeah, yeah. Um, or it was 50 years, whatever, 90 years, I don't know. It was some stupid number. Yeah, and the next so like what, three generations essentially. Of Métis people in Manitoba can say nothing about any resource development that the uh hydro wants to do yeah exactly and so you know they they and so what they're trying to do is get the money back from this deal that they lost yes but to do that no matter what happens they give up their consent yes so right there this whole thing just drives me berserk in a in a day and age where we talk about protecting the water and how it's a commodity and human rights is water is a human right. And here we have an organization that should be standing up as an indigenous organization to protect land and water. 
signing over their basically unchallenged consent for money for the next 50 years. Yeah, well, and that's just it. I I know that a lot of people think this is, you know, well, it's $67 million and and that's a lot of money and that'll really help Métis people, and it absolutely would. And I would love for Métis people to have $100 million from Hydro. But the truth is, is I would love to have that with no strings attached. Where And the, the big string on this is you lose all right to challenge them for X amount of years, basically two or three generations. So you're saddling the future generation with something they probably aren't going to want. Because I imagine, I mean, can you imagine just carte blanche permission for any government to do stuff like that? Like, um, it, it, that is just a totally ridiculous thought to even think that. And 20 years from now, when you had, maybe you do have different leadership, Who's to say they're not going to suddenly go, wow, that was a really uh, crappy deal and we wish we could uh, get out of it now? Yeah. But, well, what will be what will be left of the water to protect in 20 years, 30 years, 50 yeah. years? Yeah. You know, so if we're not willing to stand up for it right now, it, there's not going to be anything left to stand up for. And then this is where it gets ludicrous. You take all these, uh, you know, half billion dollar budgets with all their legal fees and the uh, access again to the to funding in the court system for Indigenous people, and Shazam, you have the ability for the MMF to, you know, go after the government because they still want that money. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, I, I uh, and I, I hate this. Uh, every time that something happens, it's let's haul out the lawyers, haul out the lawyers, and I mean, how many millions are you going to spend? to maybe get this money back. Um, but, I mean, overall, I, I don't know. I just don't I don't like the deal to begin with because it, it forces Métis people into giving up rights. And I certainly don't like the idea of spending another $2 million on lawyers to try to fight this. Yeah. So we're going to take the colonial government to the colonial court so we can they can force us to give up our consent for money. Yeah. So over the over the water. Yeah. And its developments. And I mean, and here's here's how bad it, it, relations are is this is BC. I mean, the, this is hydro in Manitoba. Well, what other dam are they going to build and what other First Nations land are they going to flood? You know, this this totally sidelines the Métis people in Manitoba who should be standing with their strongest ally, which is the First Nations relations over the protection of that, that land and water. Absolutely. Yo, and you know, they're saying, yeah, go ahead. So then you're basically saying is the Métis people, yeah, I don't care if you flood their land as long as we got our money. <laughs> exactly. And, and that's, you know, that, that's a whole new side of it too, or a whole other side of it is, is where are the first nations in this? Where are they um, on the, did they get 67 million for the next two generations to say nothing? Like, did they get that hush money air quotes? Uh, and I, I don't, recall any of the first nations coming forward and saying we signed that kind of same deal with the with hydro um so it's 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 tough because if you're the only one signing the deal and everybody else is saying no eh, it doesn't put you in a good spot i don't think well and it continues to fracture our relationship doesn't it oh it sure does yeah where the colonial government is sure pitting Métis people against First Nation people in land development and resource extraction. Yeah. And this is a very, very, you know, prime front and center example of that. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I, um, it's, 
it's it, it it's it's hard because I, I really want uh, Métis people, you know, in every province to have these programs and stuff. But it's really hard to see this program or this money as a good thing. And and then you look at, you know, the the vitriol for Métis in the East and stuff, where they're oh well, you guys are just trying to usurp First Nations rights. Well, what is this hydro deal? Well, you guys want to take away First Nation, you want to infringe on First Nations territorial rights with your harvesting rights. Well, right here in Alberta, they're doing negotiations on harvesting rights, and there's no First Nation sitting at that table. And, you know, so everything they're saying about out east is basically what these guys are doing out here. Yeah. And so I, that's kind of another part of it that just drives me crazy is they, it's okay for them to do this stuff. Like, uh, oh, he's a, you know, Chartrand is a great leader for taking the government to court and holding the court to task on this hydro deal. Yeah, but if if this kind of stuff was done out east... It would be the whole like bloody murder out there, like people would be losing their nut. But here it's okay, and I, so I don't know. It starts to just grate on me that these guys, like this, these kinds of deals can just go through and and are touted as such a great thing. When I don't think there was First Nations sitting in those negotiations. But no, it it shows the duplicity in the, the conversation, right? So on one hand, yeah. you know, because the Métis Nation calls itself a nation. It's claiming a level of sovereignty over the land in in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, BC, Ontario, blah blah blah. So the reality yeah. is, then who owns the land? Yeah. And, and and the very fact is that if you're indigenous and that statement is something you want to ponder, that's a problem. Well, because we, none of from an indigenous point of view, which one of us owns the land? Exactly. Well, and we all know that Chartrand is very clear that the First Nations do not own the land. So that's right. Uh, you know. And so this this is really what it becomes a conversation of is when we're talking how they can develop um, hydro deal on First Nations land without any consultations for the First Nations land. It's because the Métis Nation believes it has a level of sovereignty that it exceeds First Nations. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And and, it, that, and that's where uh, you know it it's a fine line. Like I. I know that Métis were, were, were driven off land, and, and I know we have a right to land. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. But it is a fine line where, okay, but are we going to just simply go to the government to fight these battles? Or maybe we should turn and look at our, our, you know, our partners, our family, and say, hey, let's sort this stuff out with us. And, we're gonna, and then we'll go to the government and say, no, no, this is what's happening. Because we've already sorted this shit out. Now we're telling you what to do. And... I know that that sounds idealistic, but shouldn't that be the way it is? Shouldn't we be making these deals first with our First Nations family? I don't even think it's necessarily even a deal. I think the reality is when it comes to resource and resource development, extraction and all these issues, this should be the ongoing conversation that Métis people and First Nations people have with each other on an ongoing basis. And and so that every time an oil company or uh, some mining company or the government is trying to push through a pipeline, Métis people and First Nations people should be having an aligned interest in protection of land. How do they cut a deal with each other? Not even to find out how you have that conversation. It should be so natural that you wouldn't expect it to be any other way. Absolutely, yeah. And that's kind of what I meant. Yeah, like just just it it should be that conversation first, like. Okay, here's the here's what's going to happen. Okay, we're going to go meet and we're going to go discuss this and, and figure out how we want to deal with this as as a as a single entity, as a, you know, force, and then we'll come back to the government or come back to the industry and let them know. 
And that just simply is not happening in any of these nation provinces. It's like you said, they believe that they have a different level of, of ownership. And essentially, it's a very colonized viewpoint on things. Um, it's not sharing the land. It's, we'll take whatever we can get, and it's ours, and we're going to keep it. So, mm-hmm. uh, But it is tough. No, I, it is tough, because I know they were promised land by the government. So then, uh, how do you... Well, and I think... I think that's the challenge, though, is is the land they were promised still resides within First Nations traditional territory. And I think this is the conversation of of what treaty really means and how Métis people fit inside of the treaty conversation. And I think that's something that we need to sit down with First Nations relations, and we need to hammer that out for ourselves. Absolutely. Regardless of whatever the government thinks or however they believe it works, that's something we have to decide. Because we have to be very, and I want to talk about this because I think we have to be very careful when we talk about as Métis people about land ownership. Because if it's it's the treaty that, that we believe surrendered the land to the government, then the government gives it to the Métis people and therefore we have title. Well, First Nations don't believe in the surrender of land Yeah. as part of, as part of treaty. Yeah. So is Métis people's claim to land through the script process and through Confederate province of Manitoba in, into Confederacy based on the fact that we hold and stand by the, our colonial oppressors in the theft of First Nations land? Is that, is that our traditional standpoint? Yeah, absolutely. Or do, or do we stand with our First Nation family and go that route? Mm-hmm. I I think I think it's a it's a great uh, topic of conversation and, and I I don't know I you know if you asked a hundred Métis I don't know if they'd all come up with the same answer but um, essentially that's the way I view it is is it boils down to you have those two options you can stand with your First Nation family and unite on that fact or you can go with the colonizing government and you're part of colonization now so it's yeah. And, 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 you know, we, we talk about these organizations and the structures and everything like that, and that is colonization. These structures are col- colonial, um, which breeds a colonial mentality. So after 20-some years of leadership, perhaps it is time for new leadership in the fact that that is just a person who's been in deeply entrenched in the colonial system for way too long, and that has to affect them on some level. It just has to affect their thoughts. Well, if you believe that that uh, surrendering your land and and the right to consultation on the waters, that you have no obligation to protect the the, the creatures that live there because of money, uh, then you probably yeah I, I think we really need to stop and check our colonialism. <laughs> Maybe we should come up with a colonial. I should talk to some uh, some of my uh, First Nations friends and we'll come up with a colonial colonization checklist or something. <laughs> you might be colonized when <laughs> exactly see whole new comedy routine awesome yeah uh so from there we're moving on to uh some good news i guess here in alberta we are getting a new cultural gathering center uh up at metis crossing which for those who don't know is i believe about an hour hour and a half northeast of edmonton um and uh it's apparently it's going to have classrooms and meeting rooms, exhibits and interpretive spaces, and it will allow Métis Crossing to offer year-round programming for the first time with experiences such as trapping, uh, night sky watching, and snowshoeing. So I, I guess that's good news, right, Jace? That's, that is good news. 
Well, I mean, anytime that Métis people have the ability to build a cultural center, regardless of the, the finances involved, I always believe that's a good idea. Absolutely. Um, I, I think it's amazing. The, you know, I, I have a couple raised eyebrows on the issue, but off the hop, anytime we can build a cultural center for the preservation of our historical way of life in the West is two thumbs away up. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I, from a personal standpoint, uh, I would love to see this open and running the way, obviously the way they want it with some meeting spaces and stuff, but I would love to see like, uh, language classes and stuff like that being offered through this, uh, interpretive center. I, I think the tough thing for me though, is, uh, you know, um, I know I've never been to Métis Crossing. I, I understand it is quite nice, but the truth is, is it's, it is very far away from your, your main urban centers, which is the biggest part of your population of Métis people. And so I just, uh, my only concern is they're going to build this great, uh, space. They're going to have this great thing there. And then, uh, you know, we did an interview with Rachel Snow where they did the same thing. They built these great things. And then she said, you know, nobody showed up. And nobody really seemed to really grasp onto that. And I wonder if that's going to be the same problem, being that they're so, I guess, so far away from, you know, the two major urban centers in, in Alberta. Yeah, well, I really have two, the two-fold problem. I totally agree with you. The utilization rate of a multi-million dollar facility like this will be extremely low, uh, comparatively if you were talking somewhere near either of our urban centers since... Yeah. Um, statistically, that is where the bulk of Maumete people live. Yes. So um, the other challenge I have is, again, uh, last time I checked, the MA is the title holder on the Métis Crossing. So it's really their land, their organization, their facility. And so it really rolls into their, uh, you know, corporate four-company structure. Yes. Um, so do the Métis people own it? Yeah, you know, the corporation does. Yeah. And so that gives me the raised eyebrow, makes me pause. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, just looking at the funding, um, so I, I uh, seen the, some of the numbers. Uh, the government of Canada is putting three and a half million into it. The government of Alberta is putting a million in. And then the Métis Nation of Alberta Association is putting in the remainder of the cost, which they did not specify what that remainder of cost would be. And the only thing I, that struck me as odd about that whole scenario is uh, the Métis Nation of Alberta Association is completely funded by the government of Canada and the government of Alberta. So <laughs> I, I think it's kind of funny to think, oh, the government of Canada is putting an X amount, the government of Alberta is putting an X amount, and the M&A is putting an X amount. Well, actually, it's you just take the M&A out. The government of Canada is putting in a little more than what they're saying, and so is the government of Alberta, because that's where all the money comes from for the M&A. So yeah, it's, it's <laughs> that's misleading. why the, the amount is not disclosed. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it's it's kind of misleading to think, oh, well, the M and A is putting in their own money. No, they're putting in the government's money with their stamp on it. Yeah. <laughs> but it went from the government's bank account to the M and A's bank account to you know then to build it. So yeah, therefore it's the M and A's money. <laughs> it's it sounds like a money laundering scheme to be honest with you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, we're essentially looking at a you know a multi-million dollar complex. Yes. That, I, I, and as much as I'd like to be optimistic, I, I think it's going to be sadly underutilized because to run all the programs you're talking about requires staff and requires people to run you know to, to maintain the building, to run the yeah. programs, to offer all those things. 
and you know you're looking at you know almost two hours away from Edmonton yeah um, and so that's that's a large demand to meet that need in a rural population of Métis people and I realize that settlements are close and it'll create some jobs and stuff like that but again what it really boils down to is a segregated geographical location of Métis people will get to you know uh, be enhanced having a you know uh, view of their culture but how many yes. indig- indigenous youth uh, from Edmonton will get a chance to go out and participate in, in that event yeah. you know, at any time in the summer or in the winter? How many classes will get to go out there and, and participate? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and even, you know, you talk about the, the settlements are close by, and I think the closest one is uh, like 50 kilometers away or something. But, I mean, if mm-hmm. if you're – that's not exactly a morning commute. 50 kilometers is – I understand it's straight down one single highway, but that's still a heck of a commute first thing in the morning and then on the way home. So it's not like that's going to be a convenience for a lot of people. Um, I'm sure that you're not going to be making, well, I can't say for sure, but uh, I'm guessing that the average person working there is not going to be making $150,000 a year. So just the gas costs alone to be running 100 kilometers up and down the highway every day is going to deter people. And I, I think the remote location of it is is going to be a negative on it. Uh, the other thing I can see being a positive is I, I can assume that the Métis Nation of Alberta is then going to plan to have all of their AGMs at Métis Crossing, um, which I I think they do now, if I'm not correct, but they'll have at least a nice new building to do that in, uh, so maybe that's good. I'd, I, will that attract more voters? I don't know. I hope, I hope so. Well, and, and at the end of the day, sadly, that's what I'm taking away from this, is that it's more like a corporate development uh, for the yeah. M&A yeah. than it is about uh, saying, we're, we're, honestly, we, we want to really preserve our culture. We want to showcase our culture. We want to provide cultural access to all of our people. And so we're going to put it somewhere where we can you know, centralize and do that. What this really looks like is a, is a $4 million corporate development at Métis Crossing that will largely only benefit corporate M&A. Absolutely, yeah. Well, hey, maybe they'll offer um, Métis Nation uh, retreats and stuff like that. So maybe that'll be there. For the low discount price of, and upon showing <laughs> your membership card. Well, hey, but you know what? One of the things they could do is if they had this building and they, you know, if they had space for campers and stuff, they actually might be able to turn that into a somewhat of an, uh, I guess, a, a getaway or an economy or a tourist destination somehow. Sure. Um, it will be, yeah. $35 a night. You can park your RV at uh, yeah. Métis Crossing. And with fall hookups and tour of the site. Yeah, and experience life as a, as a Métis. So, you know, me, there is those possibilities. Um, and I, I do think it's a good thing. I just do have a little bit of hesitation as just the location. Uh, I think it would have been much better suited in either Edmonton or Calgary or even better yet in Red Deer. It would have really drove up the numbers of, of uh, Métis engagement in Red Deer probably. But then you'd have easy access from both major centers, and uh, I think you'd get a facility that was way more used than what you're going to see this one. So it's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. It's un- I find that aspect of it, I think, is going to be very unfortunate. Yep. Uh, so the next thing up is uh, the 60 Scoop Settlement. It uh, got federal approval in the federal courts. Mm-hmm. So that means that uh, there's $750 million for survivors. Woohoo! Way to go, survivors. On average, that means that you're going to get $37,500 each for being stolen from your 
culture, your people, and handed out to people all over the world who denied you and abused you. And awesome. So that's worth thirty-seven thousand. Uh, yeah, let's not uh, divide that by the number of days people had to endure these horrific things. Yeah, no, let's not do that math. <laughs> um, and then the really interesting numbers is fifty million dollars for the foundation, um, sixty scoop foundation, and then seventy-five million for lawyers' fees. So twenty-five million more for lawyers' fees than they're spending on setting up a foundation for sixty scoop survivors. So gotta love the lawyers. I if I don't know, I mean, I don't know if there's much more you can do to slap sixty scoop survivors in the face, in my opinion. But certainly paying more in legal fees than a sixty scoop foundation, I think that would probably top the list somehow. Well, I, and I don't know. I mean, I understand that the legal system in Canada is a monster of a profession. Yeah, but at, at what point? Do you use legal firms sit there happily taking that kind of money, knowing that that's how the numbers broke down? Oh, I know, I know. It's... And so the government, and, and what they were talking about is we don't know which lawyers those are either. So were those the government lawyers getting part of that money? Yeah, who knows? Who were who were, who were trying to mitigate that cost? The whole thing is so horrific that that we even have the government of Canada taking you know, money that should be going to survivors, to the center and, and, you know, look at the amount that went to the lawyers. That's brutal. Yeah. Well, and then on top of that, you do have to keep in mind too, that this is only for first nations, 60 scoop survivors. This is not for me to your Inuit because they were obviously not included. So, you know, uh, again, we go back to these organizations who would spend $2 million a year on legal fees. Um, where was the big fight when ahead of time we've talked about that before in past episodes? Where was the the legal fight to get Métis included in these things? And I just don't remember reading about it or seeing it or hearing about it. So it's pretty sad. Uh, and I don't even I, I does the government wash their hands now? Are they done? Or I mean, they've said they're going to come back to the table with Métis people. Uh, when every other lawsuit in Canada is cleared up regarding sixty scoop, so. They just bought themselves about 25 years. <laughs> but, uh, and at that point, are they just going to go, well, it's, you know, we can't do anything about that now. I don't know. Well, it's so far down the road, but let, let's face facts. If the bulk of the, the people who were in residential schools were, in, in fact, from First Nations, and, and this is the settlement they got, really, if you're Métis and you're out, you know, and you're looking for that settlement down the road, boy, you should be really, you know, upset because it's probably going to be a lot less. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's if if they dealt with the majority of people in this lawsuit, like you said, even the priority level to deal with it down the road then, it just goes right to the bottom because the majority are dealt with. And that's really all they need to worry about. Um, so they'll just keep kicking that ball down the road. And I, I fully suspect that in my lifetime, I'll, you know, I'll be back with creator before they start doing anything with Métis 60 scoop. But, but that's my cynical well, viewpoint on it. We'll probably be talking about the millennial scoop and at the same time, but it really chagrins me to think that they're not only is this going to kick down the road further, the amount that Métis people who suffered the same hardships are going to get will be even less. Absolutely. 
Yeah, and you know, one of the lawyers even said he goes, uh, he quote, he was quoted as saying, "I'm very pleased. I think this is the right direction for Canada." And uh, I I kind of know what he was trying to imply there or get to there, but the truth is, is that statement alone says that. Uh, oh, and and this is a lawyer who does represent five thousand survivors, and he said made the statement. It, I think it's the right direction for Canada. So that kind of says to me that that lawyer's focus wasn't so much on the survivors as getting an adequate deal that Canada's willing to agree to that can get him netted a, a good chunk of change. Um, I just thought that was a terrible statement for a lawyer representing the survivors to say. I just, <laughs> And I think this is what we have to acknowledge is that the whole system is so colonial yeah. that the lawyers inside of it have no intrinsic connection to indigenous perspective and indigenous people. And so they're looking inside of the Canadian construct of the colonialism and saying, yeah, this is a good settlement for the government. And sure that, yeah, these guys will get some money. Exactly. And, and I think that's the difference when you, when you know, you have a, um, like even a lawyer that is understands indigenous, uh, you know, issues and understands indigenous beliefs and, and things like that, to even some extent, I don't think they would make the statement, this is a great deal for Canada. Um, it might be a good deal. It's a, probably a fantastic deal for the government of Canada and for the country in whole, because now as soon as this is signed, poof, we're done. Our our responsibility to 60 Scoop First Nation survivors is over. Uh, we'll get the mm-hmm. foundation, and it'll run for a few years, but eventually that funding is going to get cut too, so let's face that fact. Um, yep. Yeah. But but as a lawyer representing him, I just thought, man, that's such a terrible way to state that. Like I, I know he's probably trying to say this is a great deal for everybody involved. So say everybody involved. Don't say Canada. Oh yeah. I mean that just yeah drives me crazy. But then I but guess that's the whole oh, yeah that's the whole thing. Like for for me, that's what bugs me about the this whole settlement issue yeah. is it allows the colonial government to exactly what you said close the book on this ugly chapter in their history. And yeah. go back to business. And we talked about, oh, a settlement. Oh, yeah, it's three quarters of a billion dollars. But this is a, a country that, that runs, you know, tens of billions of dollars of deficit every year. Yeah. What's what's three quarters of a billion dollars? It's nothing. Well, and, and yet yeah. we're making it out to be some great windfall for people who have suffered lifelong trauma because of these horrific events. Exactly. And, and, you know, I, we go, I go back to that episode where we went through the budget 2018 and, you know, when we talk about, so each survivor gets, if you divide it equally amongst all the survivors, which is actually not how they're going to do it either, but I, yeah, that's a whole nother thing. But if you just divide it equally, so each survivor gets $37,500. Okay, but let's put that into realistic terms. Let's say you wanted to now he start healing your own family. So let's say I'm a 60 scoop survivor and I got a couple of kids now and I, you know, I want to reheal my relationship with my biological family and my let's say I had a a good adoptive family but they didn't know anything about culture, but I wanted to bring them together. Well, we need counseling for that. We need to do these things. So once you start throwing in things like counseling and uh, stuff like that, or even travel to go see your biological family who might be four provinces away now, uh, two times a year. That thirty-seven thousand five hundred. How far is that going to go? It's not going to go very far. It's totally inadequate. Well, and and think of it this way: it, how much time did some of these people spend in residential school? 
Exactly. Yeah. You d- you need to b- start dividing that up by the amount of days yeah. they spent there being traumatized. Yeah. And you say say how how much was your day worth? How much yeah. was that trauma worth? And I realize at some point we have to acknowledge that there isn't enough. There's not a dollar figure you can put on that. No. But I I think the reality is exactly what you're getting at is thirty seven thousand dollars doesn't go very far. No. I can't. I mean, in reality, you can't even buy a new pickup truck for that much money. No, absolutely not. Um, so yeah, it's shameful. This isn't a. This is a very good deal for Canada because they're going to sign the check and they're going to walk away. Yes. But it really is shameful. It is. And and I would even be, you know, if any if in these deals they said, okay, we're going to give 37,500 each. However, each survivor will then get uh up to I don't know, $25,000 a year or for the next uh, year of counseling and or whatever, like maybe they get a, a certain amount for counseling, but make it reasonable, not like, well, we get $500 for counseling. But if they started tacking on those things that are maybe softer costs that they could just absorb into the healthcare budget, so to speak, and just say, no, uh, you go and you the counselor can just bill the government of Canada back. It's all part of healthcare spending. So it doesn't necessarily have to be in our settlement deal. It just you get X amount for counseling. You get X amount, on, and the bill just comes to us, and we de- we deal with that. If there was those kinds of provisions, I'd even be happier with these deals, but there's never those provisions in there. Never. So. No, because the government doesn't want that ongoing burden. They want to write a one-time check. Yeah. Have a good deal. Have a good deal for Canada, and close the chapter. The, and that's what the Canada really wants. It yeah. doesn't matter whether it's treaties, whether it's land, whether it's water, whether it's trauma in the past, whether it's colonialism. They want to be able to write the check, close the book, and pretend it never happened. Absolutely. And then and then we've reconciled. We've reconciled with 60 scoop survivors. Awesome. Uh, And some of the other questionable things about this case was, I don't know if you heard any, there was a a kind of a, a lot of pissed off people about what the judge had said during the actual, uh, you know, in court and stuff. Um, At one time he had mentioned something about uh, uh, eating bananas or something like savages. And he made comparisons to weird things and then he uh, he told the gallery of non-indigenous that non-indigenous people were harmed more than indigenous survivors of the sixty scoop and other historic events because they caused non-indigenous people to lose their reverence for the land and nature. Like this is the judge that made this decision final. Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> so the. He's he's already he's sitting up there in his opening statement saying how this has been harder on non-indigenous people because we've lost our our wonder for the land and nature because of these things. What the hell That's, is that? Yeah, like that. I mean, I don't even know how you get there. I don't know how. It just shows you <laughs> how when indigenous people get sucked into this arena, yeah, it just goes. It's just sideways all the time. Oh, it, it is, and it, you know, I just I don't un- when we talked earlier about uh, you know this is a colonial system and a colonial court and things like that. I mean, this is what we're talking about right here: is mm-hmm. lawyers representing the survivors, saying how good of a deal this is for Canada, not their clients, the survivors, 
and a judge sitting up there saying how this is more harmful to non-indigenous than it was to indigenous. Like, are you are you kidding me? Like, this is times where I, I really want to swear. I really do. It's just there's just no other words. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, and, uh, and it really shows though how absolutely disconnected uh, people are still in these places of privilege from what actually happened and the trauma other people really suffered. Absolutely. And it's, it's just, for me, it's like the big neon sign on the side of the road. It's how far away from quote unquote reconciliation we really truly are. I mean, we're so far away. We can't even see shore on reconciliation Island yet. Yeah. We're still speaking two totally different languages. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, I, I, I've been thinking a lot about all these things, and it's it's really truly when you start to see the court system or the government or the policies actually truly looked at through an Indigenous perspective as to how will this impact on Indigenous people, even though it's a law that's uh, for immigration. Okay, but that has nothing, you know, we're not immigrating people to the res, so, you know, it doesn't impact them, so whatever. But when they actually start looking at policies like that through an Indigenous lens, how does that affect an Indigenous people? I think at that point, then you can start to say, well, maybe we have come a little ways with reconciliation. But when you have judges saying stupid crap like that, I mean, to, to qu- quote the immortal Joe Rogan, that's just dopey dum-dum talk. That really, that's what it boils <laughs> down to. Yep. <laughs> There's no other way to say it. There's no way to, no way to better that one. No. Um... So the last couple of things that are kind of quicker, uh, I want to, I think the Lethbridge City Council uh, doing land acknowledgements now at all their council meetings is phenomenal. So good for you, Lethbridge mm-hmm. City Council. That's awesome. Way to step up to the plate. That's right. They're going to acknowledge, uh, you know, traditional Blackfoot territory and the traditional territory of Métis Region 3. The traditional Woo-hoo! territory. I don't know. How is that possible? Didn't we just cover that in the last couple episodes? There's no way to keep us out of the Red River. That's right. And it's not traditional Métis Region 3. <laughs> what the hell is a Region 3? Yeah, um, well, I'm, I'm sure that's what, you know, when they originally came to Buffalo Hunt, that's what they called it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's all good there. That's uh, But another one, it's another one of those things that just kind of gets under my skin, and I can't get rid of it. It's like an itch that won't go away when I hear that stuff, so yay. Oh, it just drives me. Uh, but, hey, on, on that note, I do have to say good job to the uh, uh, Edmonton School Board. When they put up the flags at their, uh, I don't know, at all their schools now, There's the they're in Treaty mm-hmm. 6, I think. So there's the Treaty 6 flag, there's the Métis flag, and the school flags, Edmonton, Alberta, Governor Canada, all that kind of stuff. But the really cool thing is they had first announced it as they were putting up the Métis Nation of Alberta flag. And uh, when I mentioned it online that that's not the MNA flag, that's actually the Métis people's flag, and it's very different, they actually changed their post. So good for them. That was awesome. Yeah, I saw you you caught that right away, and I was quite amazed, actually, that they uh, they totally changed their post on that. That was, uh, you know, kudos to them. Yeah, and I mean, because that's the whole thing is I, I don't begrudge anybody who makes a mistake as long as they correct it and they, they're they learning from it, so I thought that was awesome. Um, you made a mistake, but you corrected it, and you moved on, and you acknowledged it. They even said, and they even replied saying, oh, yeah, we, that makes sense, and we'll change it, and they did, so good for them. Uh, Good on you for catching that. That's right. Well, yeah. yay. Uh, <laughs> that must mean I'm just spending way too much time online in these last few days. I think. <laughs> uh, 
I need a de- digital detox. That's like the new catchphrase I've been hearing: a digital detox from now on, where you digital just like detox. take uh, you, you take a day or four days or something, and you you turn off all your devices and your electronics and go camping without them or something. <laughs> ah, digital I, detox. I, I'd probably get information overload if I turn my phone back on for everything that we see that goes on in a week. Yeah, no kidding, eh? Oh man. Um, and then I want to just mention, uh, I want to congratulate, uh, you know, Maria Campbell, who's an absolute, uh, amazing person in the Métis world and in the, mm-hmm. you know, in Canada in general. Um, she is going to be, uh, given an honorary doctorate from the University of Winnipeg this spring. So that's awesome news. I think that's absolutely that's fantastic. amazing. Yeah. That's good stuff. Good stuff. She's definitely uh, lived a life where she has des- earned the, at least that and many, many more awards and, and accolades. So awesome. That's just awesome. Uh, but other than that, I think we're out of topics now. And I just want to let everybody know that uh, I'm taking off to Victoria in a few days. and uh, But there will be podcasts coming out. Uh, I have scheduled them, so that's my that's new to me. So I'm all excited about that because I'm somewhat of a tech geek. But uh, yeah, so uh, next Tuesday there'll be an, an interview. There won't be me and Jason ranting because I will be uh, indisposed. I will be doing a digital tea talks, so to speak. He he's gonna go run away to the island where it's lovely. That's right, and I escape I, I, the big city. And I love it so much. I'm not gonna eat for four whole days. <laughs> uh so yes, I'm going to be gone, but uh, it'll be a great interview, um, and I hope you guys really enjoy it. I absolutely loved it. Uh, it's the uh, author of Lee Nouvelle, which if you don't know, you will know by the end of that podcast. And uh, yeah, it's absolutely fantastic conversation. And other than that, I think that's the only news I got. Anything you want to get off your chest, Chase, before we uh, get off here? No. I hope uh, everybody logs onto the Patreon page and uh, makes me plant a tree. Absolutely. Get get him planting trees, man. He needs to do some hard work for the summer. Maybe, yeah. maybe we'll keep that reward up all summer, and then that way people can pledge every month, and then every month you got to go plant more trees. Hey, if that is what it takes to a, reforest the trees that the ding-dongs keep cutting down, I would be happy to do that. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, there's actually businesses that make, uh, make a lot of money by planting trees. Like there's the 10-tree company where... You buy a shirt, they plant 10 trees. Well, here you go. You patron our podcast and we'll plant a tree for you. So um, that's awesome. And I, I hope you guys enjoyed tonight's episode and I hope you guys enjoy next week's. And I will be back, I think, uh, 28th or something like that, 27th. So well, until then, I think that's it. Go be good ancestors. The jig is up. You are the spark that's starting a fire that will spread across this land. I don't mean a fire that doesn't burn, but a fire that cleanses, a fire that ignites in our hearts and creates light. No more living in darkness. Our time is...